Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Hello, my name is Thomas and welcome to the latest podcast of British culture, Albion Never Dies. This is a special one-off episode, just having a, a quick look at the 5th of November. I feel I couldn't let this get day go past without touching upon it. That poem, which is of course so famous, goes something, and again there's lots of regional variations, it goes something like this. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fawkes, Guy Fawkes, t'was his intent to blow up the king and the parliament. Three school barrels of powder below, poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence he was catched with a dark lantern and burning match. Holler boys, holler boys, let the bell ring. So this is a special festival in the UK which really celebrates the catching of Guy Fawkes, the stopping of the plot to kill the king and all of his ministers, his advisers, the whole of Parliament at that time well representing England and Scotland and Wales. So. I really felt I couldn't let this day go past without having a bit of a, a think about it, about its significance. I touched on this briefly, I think in G is for Great, I, I touched on this because a friend of mine in Shenzhen, China mentioned it as a really good G, uh, Guy Fawkes, and when I talked um, to my friend Kane in China, he referenced this as a really interesting example of how, as a, as a British expatriate, this is something you kind of miss out on, um, and certainly I feel that way too, uh, having spent so much of my life away from the UK. I feel this is something that I've very, very much missed out on, because this is a, a community uh, celebration. So we have, of course, the major holidays, you know, Christmas, Easter, in which we, of course, have our church, and we have, you know, organized religion to help us remember when it is, and what to do, and how to celebrate. And of course we have commercialism. Uh, we can walk down a shopping mall and see it. The 5th of November is quite unusual in that, again, as, as we've discussed among ourselves as British expats, it's very hard to find like an item that really celebrates it. There are, of course, Guy Fawkes masks, but they've really become kind of more synonymous in pop culture with, say, Viva Vendetta or with Anonymous, the hacking group that wear them, which is a kind of a funny... A funny mix of symbology, a kind of funny taking away of its original meaning, um, to the point that you could buy one and it doesn't really celebrate 5th of November. Of course, it is a very difficult thing to replicate. I lived in a, a big Chinese city, I lived in Shenzhen, which is a population of around 14 million people, 14 million people registered to the city, and due to the, the size of the, the megapolis, uh, you can't have bonfires, you can't have fireworks legally, even even little sparklers, um, handheld sparklers are, are no. Um, so it's very, very difficult to celebrate what we often call bonfire night or fireworks night or Guy Fawkes night. It's very difficult to celebrate that when you are missing out on the essential element, which is the bonfire. So again, it's something that you you can very easily miss out on living abroad. And I really wanted to, to touch upon it, upon its significance. 
I just really wanted to, yeah, as I say, go deep into it. And I mentioned the symbology. It is funny how it's been kind of taken, used differently. Um, obviously, Viva Vendetta is a, a comic book that got adapted into a movie with Hugo Weaving and Natalie Portman and was very, very successful. It shows kind of a version of the story. Um, I remember watching it thinking it wasn't very, very accurate to my mind, and the way they use it was kind of interesting that the main character in the, in the movie, if it's V, then he's drawing upon it, but in a very unusual way. He's kind of a freedom fighter, he believes in democracy, um, which I have to say, I don't think that's really Guy Fawkes' intent. <laughs> but that's symbology. It changes over time. Um, so here we have a symbol of the religious wars in Europe, uh, a pro-Catholic, uh, being used as an anarchist symbol. But of course, you know, the swastika is the classic example of a uh, traditional symbol that has been misused, abused, and bounded around. Um, I remember I was in a, a beer factory in Qingdao. Um, it's, Qingdao is one of the, I guess, the national beer of China. It used to be a German colony. Um, so, naturally, the Germans created a beer factory. Um, and it's, as it's, Qingdao is probably the national beer of China. And as you looked around, it was kind of funny to see um, some of the old bottles in this German factory having swastikas all around it. And I pointed it out, made a joke, and naturally received the talk of, oh, well, you know, this is a Buddhist symbol, you mustn't think of it that way, which, you know, I've been living in East Asia quite a long time, I know this. Um, I was told, I've often been told this, that if the Buddhist swastika goes one direction and the fascist swastika goes around another direction, I have to say, whilst, you know, whilst the Nazis were very, very, very specific about this and many other things, uh, I've never really come across a Buddhist institute that's quite so specific. It can go around both ways, and I've certainly seen it in a Buddhist temple, actually a very recently constructed Buddhist temple, exactly the same way as the Nazi symbol. But it's, for them, a symbol of peace. And, of course, if you collect the old Rudyard Kipling novels, you know, I have a set from the from the 20s and 30s, and they, they have, of course, the swastika on it because it was a Buddhist symbol of peace, and that's something referenced uh, very much in Kipling's work. So, again, here's a classic example of a symbol that's been kind of torn and changed. Um, perhaps a minor example is the, the peace symbol, right? I'm, I'm currently in the west coast uh, of America. I'm in California where you do see vans driving around with the, the peace symbol. You get all the tie-dye T-shirts and, you know, the, the whole cultural whatever that goes with it. <laughs> um, so you see the peace symbol, which originally was a British uh, complete nuclear disarmament symbol. Um, it was designed by Gerald Holton, a uh, British designer who, who never copyrighted this. He, he wanted it to spread all around the world, uh, but as I say, as a complete nuclear disarmament symbol. Um, in fact, the symbol comes from the cephamore for N and D. Cephamore, of course, being that, that alphabet that you make using uh, flags, one in each hand. Uh, and yet the position of the, the N and the D creates the peace symbol. Um, but again, that's something that's generally, I, I call it the peace symbol rather than the nuclear disarmament symbol. Uh, again, it's in a similar area, but it's interesting how it broadened out. So symbology, of course, it changes over time. But uh, but I'd say in the UK, it's actually, I'd say the fireworks day has really retained its original, original meaning, which is, I say, the religious wars in Europe between England becoming a Protestant country and being assaulted by all the Catholic countries all around it. And perhaps a word on, on the timing of this. 
you know, we all know of you know Henry VIII breaking from Rome because he wanted to marry somebody that the Pope disagreed with. He wanted to divorce his wife and so on. We, that's a fairly well trodden story. In 1533, Henry VIII breaks from Rome. Um, I always hesitate to play too much into the significance of that one event. Of course, it is a significant event because of what happened later, um, but it wouldn't be the first time that England has kind of broken with the authority of Rome. What's really shocking is um, when his son, as, as a very, very young boy king, breaks with Catholic doctrine, starting in 1548 and, and repealing a lot of, kind of Catholic practices in the UK, going very much against um, against kind of received doctrine on the mainland of Europe. And of course Mary, uh, popularly known as Bloody Mary, comes in and tries to re-establish the Catholic Church. Now she was queen for a very short time in England, between what January 1556 and November 1558, but in that time 283 prominent Protestants were executed in, in horrific ways. Um, and 800 prominent Protestants fled. Um, so this was, I think, fair to say, a reign of terror. She tried to bring back Catholicism, and it failed. Elizabeth I instituted what we rarely consider the Church of England, um, defeated the Spanish Armada as the Spanish, as a kind of a Catholic power, tried to take uh, England. And then you have James I, or James VI, if you're Scottish, um, who who succeeded Elizabeth I, bringing in the the English Bible, um, the James, the King James Bible, in 1611. Um, so again, you have this. It takes a long time as we split apart uh, from from Catholic uh, Europe, but and this is important, right? Because it's it's under James I that we have this attempt to destroy Protestant England. So these are all the memories that's going past. Of course, even at the time, you know, there's great wars going on in Europe that Britain has really tried to stay out of and stay away from. Uh, but it's worth looking at this Reformation um, as a kind of civil war. A little while ago on YouTube, I reviewed uh, Tony Jutt's uh, post-war, and one of his interesting comments, especially when looking at the the aspect of civil war in Eastern Europe during the Second World War, he was like, no matter which side you're on, no matter who wins, who loses, in a civil war, you must live with the other afterwards. You have to live with them. There's no getting away um, from from your sworn enemy in a civil war. And that's, I think, very important with the, the Catholic Protestant uh, dimension of this conflict, as I say, we're looking back at um, the early 1600s. Um, but who was it? Who, 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 uh, who were the people involved? So I talked about the kings and the queens on one side, really turning Britain to be a Protestant country. So who was it who was against this? Well, I kind of find it interesting um, that if we look at, say, Guy Fawkes, we're looking at somebody who, in modern terms, would really call a middle-class man. He was a minor landowner at the time. He wasn't a member of the Lords. He wasn't aristocratic, but he owned a bit of land. He had a bit of wealth. He had a bit of education enough to look at the world and strongly disagree. And that's interesting. If you look at revolutions throughout history, our civil war, again, which had a religious dimension, our civil war in England started in 1642, Ended 1651, one of the key figures was Cromwell, who again was a very, very minor figure at the beginning but rose up. Lord Halifax at the beginning, one of the key players, but again, 
he was a lord, but it's really Cromwell that we remember, who again would fit into that context of being middle class. If you look at the American Revolution, George Washington, a very good example of someone middle class by the terms of his own time. In fact, revolutions throughout the world have generally been led by people in the middle class. I suppose they're people whose ambitions have been frustrated, they want to go higher. If you're aristocratic, you probably won't lead a revolution because you're benefiting from the status quo. But the middle class have enough education, enough organisational ability, and enough knowledge to really push for this, which, again, it might go into a a sideline here, but that's also the case with terrorists. Um, Terrorists around the world have often been from the middle class of whatever society they're terrorising, and we can consider uh, Guy Fawkes as a terrorist rather than a failed revolutionary. That's one perspective on him. But he's really, I say, violently rebelling against what in Britain has, or sorry, England, has become a very, very peaceful situation. Again, the religious reformation in England is over. We even now have peace between England and Scotland, as I say, with James I or James VI becoming king of both countries. We have peace between Protestants and Catholics, and we're trying to avoid the great conflicts that we see on the mainland, on, on Europe. So, again, this is, this is interesting. It's happening in 1605. The Reformation is very, very much in people's minds of how divisive it was, how deadly it was. Our civil wars in the future, <laughs> and the religious wars in Europe are now. Um, and again, those wars are important because Guy Fawkes took part in them. He sold his estate in Clifton, which is near York, uh, which he'd inherited, and he travelled to the continent to fight in the Eighty Years' War. So that's Catholic Spain against the new Dutch Republic. Uh, and he fought for years, again, for the Catholic cause. And he went to Spain trying to, to gather enough uh, support to, to have a war between Spain and, and, uh, and England. He's been described as a tall, powerfully built man, thick reddish-brown hair, flowing moustache, tradition at the time, and bushy, bushy brown beard. And that's, that's from the author Antonia Fraser, who's a fantastic author, and wrote a book uh, called The Gunpowder Plot, in which he goes deep, deep into this. But again, when he went to Spain, he, he failed. He failed to, to really get support for a Catholic rebellion. Um, but... But he did meet uh, Thomas Wintour, with whom he returned to England, and Wintour introduced him to Robert Catsby, and he was the man who planned to assassinate King James I. We remember Guy Fawkes because he is the man who was grabbed. He was the man who was caught. He was tortured. He did give away the names of, of his co-conspirators, and that's how all of them were caught. Perhaps they imagined if they killed the king and all his advisers that they would become national heroes. But in fact, it was the catching of them that made them national, national villains. And again, I've, I've not seen any, any report at the time um, that suggested people thought anything otherwise. They thought that their peace was more important than Guy Fawkes' revolution. Again, it's, it's something that perhaps nowadays we don't focus too much on the Catholic element, although it is, you know, it is the motivation behind the violence. Um, but again, even, say, a hundred years ago, it was quite common to have poems like a penny loaf to feed the Pope, a farthing of cheese to choke him down, a pint of beer to rinse it down, a faggot of sticks to burn him, burn him in a tub of tar, burn him like a blazing star, burn his body from his head, 
then we'll say, oh, Pope is dead, hip hip hurrah. <laughs> There's very few places, I think, in Britain where it's seen in that dimension. Of course, on the south coast, there is uh, a town, Lewis, L-E-W-E-S, I believe, um, where they have extraordinary flotillas. And I, I love flipping through the, the British newspapers after after Bond Van Night to see the extraordinary uh, kind of paper mache constructions they've created. Um, all kinds of people have been burnt at the state, as have been burnt uh, as guys uh, in Lewis. Of course, most prime ministers, several American presidents, and whoever is the villain of the week. Um, of course, Bin Laden was one of them. Um, so, but all kinds of hate figures. Uh, I think uh, Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Salmon as uh, Scottish nationalists have also been burned. Um, I can't remember if I said this in a previous podcast, I met somebody whose mother, um, there was a paper mache version of her that was burned um, as she was on the local council and tried to institute some health and safety regulations for all the, for the craziness that's going on and naturally people objected to this so, so burnt an effigy of her. <laughs> so, uh, so watch you offend in Lewis, um, you never know if they're going to burn an effigy of you. It is a... It is a fantastic thing, and, and just on a word of these guys, so a few days before, you know, children create this, um, what looks like, kind of like a scarecrow, uh, and you kind of take him around in a wheelbarrow or whatever, and it's a penny for the guy, so you give money to the guy, of course that goes to a local charity or to the, the firework association, um, and then he's put on top of the bonfire, he looks like Guy Fawkes, he has the hat, normally has the moustache, and then the whole thing is set aflame. It's a great night, everyone getting together for that, watching the fireworks up, and and eating a toffee apple is the, the tradition. Um, so it's a, it's quite an event, but as I say, it's a very a very localised event. Uh, we've lived in different parts of the UK where it can be celebrated very, very differently, and where, I say, a revisionist historian can have all kinds of views. So some people say Guy Fawkes was the last person to enter Parliament with honest intentions. So some people do now see him as a kind of a bit of a hero. Some people see him as a villain. Um, really, we in some ways project ourselves onto him, um, as as makes a thing interesting. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting festival, quite unique, and one that I found really hasn't travelled around. Uh, it's got very unique symbology. That's kind of been changed around. I think it has a very interesting history. And of course, Catholics are, you know, part of British society now. We have members of Parliament who are Catholics. We had until very, very recently a law saying that the King of England uh, could not marry a Catholic. And Camilla Parker Bowles, um, now Prince Charles's wife, was a Catholic. And they actually passed a law to say this was okay. Um, but I believe she converted to Church of England as he will one day be king and head of the Church of England. Um, but, but again, it, it does relate to our own time. Um, the concept of revolutions coming from the middle classes, well, that's, that is interesting, I think. Um, it, it's an almost, almost inviolable law of history. Uh, there are a few exceptions. Uh, but again, Guy Fawkes' middle class, Cromwell, Washington, and so on. I find the historical context very interesting. It's really... Kind of England putting aside its its religious, um, kind of all the conflicts that dominated the medieval era, really being put aside, as as especially England and Scotland join together, which again is a, a slow process of history, but you can trace it to this time, and what we end up with is a very non-commercialized community holiday, um, which can be wonderful for just bringing people together. I, I miss that atmosphere. I think it's wonderful. Um, so what can I say? Remember, remember the fifth of November. Enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening.